This is Music Ed Amplified. Happy New Year, a little bit late. Welcome to Music Ed Amplified. It has been a while. I'm continuing to forward my not always easy attempts to prioritize my piece over what is um, often a stilted perception of productivity. So since I had a whirlwind of a January, I decided to let the podcast idle and I just kept telling myself, that's okay, right? How are you doing with this? Are you still running hard trying to do all the things? Or are you learning to be more and more okay with things like not checking your email at night and on weekends, or saying no to work stuff and yes to time for yourself and for your friends and family. This looks different for every one of us, but this week I promise to try to do a little better at it if you will. Okay? Okay. I've been following today's guest, Elise Hackle Bloomstein, for a couple years now, and I have learned a lot. I knew I wanted to have her here to chat after seeing her open up about the work she does to help other teachers make their room more accessible so that all students have the tools they need to succeed, as well as her own diagnosis process. Elise is a neurodivergent accessible music teacher and accessibility coach in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, working with neurodiverse individuals from preschool through adulthood. Her main research focus is training and preparation for accessible classrooms. In 2018, Elise was nominated for the Illinois State Board of Education Those Who Excel Teacher of the Year program, receiving an award of merit. She has presented multiple conference sessions and has served as a featured guest on many podcasts. Her contributions can be found in music journals around the Midwest, as well as printed work with Music Constructed and F-flat books. Elise has also contributed chapters for the recently published book, Portraits of Music Education and Social-Emotional Learning from GIA Publications, edited by Scott Edgar, and for the Oxford University Press resource, Teaching Music to Students with Special Needs, a Practical Resource, by Alice Hamill and Ryan Howrigan. Elise currently serves as the director of the International Championships of High School and judge of collegiate a cappella. In order to help make music more accessible for all, Elise has an accessible music store designed with financial and neurophysical diversity in mind and often shares lessons and activities on her teacher Instagram page at Accessible Music Room. You can find links to these resources in the episode notes online. I was so excited when she agreed to be a guest for us, and I know you are going to be inspired by her. So let's get to it. Elise, welcome to the Music Ed Amplified podcast. I am really glad to have you here. I'm very excited. (laughs) Um, I found a really beautiful quote of yours. Um, I wonder if you'd be open to reading it for us and then just kind of talking about it, especially... Um, in your mind, uh, as it pertains to music instruction, music education, the music classroom. Absolutely. And I think the quote you're referring to is accessibility ensures space for everyone from the start. And there is no more natural space for everyone than the arts, which embody a vulnerable, exquisite human connection. Yes. What a great, great statement and true. So yes, that's the one. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we kind of got into 
I'm going to talk about COVID because we're still in it two years later. We're yeah, still well, some, as I read, uh, we're, we're starting our junior year of COVID. Yes, so. correct. So, you know, when, when this whole thing started, we really had to take a step back and evaluate the way that our teaching works. And I've always been somebody that was a big pusher for inclusion. Inclusion is really important to me and central to what I do as an accessible music teacher. But I noticed the more that I was looking into accessible music and music classrooms, Inclusion looked very different than kind of the way that I had framed it in my life. And when we're looking at inclusion, really, unfortunately, inclusion gives somebody the power to choose to include or to choose to not include, right? right? right, right. Somebody's still in charge there. So I kind of took a moment to dissect that and think about, well, what does inclusion look like in a perfect world? And really what that is, is accessibility. It's that everybody has access to whatever they need, whether it be in life, in the music classroom, and especially during a pandemic, having access to the things that we need to be able to learn. So when we think about, we had that hybrid teaching, we had remote teaching completely, we still do have in-person and variations. Does everybody have access to what they need? And when we think about what got us through COVID and what is still getting us through in the music room, it's connection. It's that vulnerable piece of the music that we listen to and the music that we love to get through it. And what a better place for accessibility and for including everybody than a space where everybody can be heard and have something that's so important to them. So it just, it was so fitting to me that during this time, I was able to take a step back and think, whoa, my students can do incredible things, whether we're in person, whether we're online, no matter what's going on, because they have access. Hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna, I mean, I'm always pretty open with what I know and what I don't know. I'm very, I'm very, um, I'm thankful to my parents because I have a confidence. I'm confident in the things that I do well. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a good sense of what those things are. And I have a very strong sense of what those things are not. <laughs> right. So, you know, talking and thinking through and pushing people to like learn how to articulate things um, for the every teacher. Those are things I'm good at. Yeah. Uh when I was in undergrad, which is a long time ago, um, we never talked about these things. Um, I saw a professor not too long ago. Um, somebody asked a question to the effect of, what about a student with, um, I don't know if they said special needs or disabilities, like a, a disabled student. And this professor really crumbled um, it's an older professor and they were like, well, I can't answer those questions and I don't, you know, this isn't my wheelhouse. So all that to say, right at the top showing my positionality as a person who is woefully, um, ignorant about things that I should know. When you were saying the word inclusion, mm-hmm. I'm, I feel sad because here's my, <laughs> I'm just going to say, My idea of inclusion is this. Are the kids mainstreamed into your class or are they in a self-contained classroom? Could you, and you can be as honest and as brutal as necessary, talk to the people out there who are like me who are like, okay, so when you use words like inclusion and accessibility, what's kind of some of the nitty gritty? Of course, these are nuanced things. But I'm sure you were ready to answer me five minutes ago. <laughs> so I'll stop talking and hopefully you know what I'm 
trying to say. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a great point too, because even, and I went to school for, I actually went to school for special at first. I didn't even go right. to school for music until oh, wow. I had a music professor who I'm going to name drop if that's okay. Kim McCord has a ton of credible, incredible books out there. Oh, okay. Inclusion and music. Kim She's, McCord, you said? Kim McCord, Kimberly McCord. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful professor in my undergrad. I took a music class and I, I had thought about going to school for music and she's like, you have to be a music teacher. You just have to. That's and awesome. so I ended up double majoring and thank goodness for my special ed background because she was the only class that was a potential to maybe learn about disability <laughs> right. Right. in the music program. And, and that is the only class that any ad majors had to take other than do you think life. can I I'm sorry and I'm, this no, go is, ahead. I'm just freestyling go ahead. do you think that's changed because I don't really know so is I it, know that it hasn't oh. um from my personal experience I'm I was my eyes enough. people yep I'm gonna send another if anybody's interested in this another wonderful person to study from out there Elaine yes. Bernstorff at Wichita State is yes. incredible and she had like my second master's was with her in music ed with a special ed endorsement okay and it was like the only program that I could find for a master's degree that had I that. I mean, how can this be? Right. So there are a few, and the, the few that are there are wonderful, but it's not something that's taught in any like general music, especially once we get into choral music and bands and high school and beyond. Yeah, forget it. There's, there's nothing out there. And the reality is a lot of it is, yes, because we're not having as many self-contained classes anymore because there's right. more inclusion, but because there is more... <laughs> Yes. It, right. Absolutely. So, and I think we're going to touch on this very briefly, maybe today, but that's why universal design for learning is so important because the difference really between inclusion and accessibility is, is inclusion. I have some of, you know, those kids and I'm quoting that because yes. that's what we hear in my class, but they're not just those kids. They are kids in your they're class. They're just kids. Right? <laughs> so the difference really being, you know, the way we think of inclusion is, are they mainstreamed in or are they in their own class when really it's accessibility is these are my students and here's what they bring to the table. And accessibility is not just for disabled folks. It's for everybody. Right. Right. Like I, a big thing that I talk about is accommodations and we all made accommodations for ourselves. We all changed how we did things in the pandemic. We all need that. We all need experts in that. Right. So it's, Uh. it's not just for our kids with IEPs. It's for everyone. And when we think about that accessibility, all classrooms should be accessible because they're meeting the needs for everyone, period. All right. So so the idea of inclusion at this point, is it still kind of like what I was envisioning it at a practical level? It's, you know, are these kids coming into um, my classroom and or is it a self-contained? We have both right. in our school, which is actually the first time in a long time we've had um, but the, the reason why is they just, I think they just moved the classrooms to a different building. Yeah, that um, happened. And but, especially in like special ed terminology, that is still inclusion is still pretty well used. Inclusion and mainstreaming are kind of those two big words. Um, accessibility is really getting further beyond the surface level of that. Piece, yeah. So. I mean, I had to be honest, I never really thought about, you know, what does accessibility mean beyond what many, at least old school teachers um, think, you know, like, oh, okay, so I have a kid in a wheelchair. So here's how can I make this accessible? But it just seems like there's a more global way of thinking 
exactly um, about it. All right. So yeah, that, that and helps to, to touch on that too, even thinking about, we know a little bit more about accessibility in terms of physical disabilities because of the Americans with disabilities act, yes. which is, you know, physical spaces and ramps and can a wheelchair fit through this and spacing, but there hasn't really been anything like that for people who are neurodivergent, right? Neurodivergent meaning differently brained, the way that our, our brains think. So think about your autistic students, people with ADHD, those types of things. We don't really see that as much, though those disabilities are much more prevalent in our classroom. Yeah, I mean, those are your biggest numbers, it feels right. like. Right. And I'm still floored. I mean, just, of course, I'd start with my experience because it's right. what I'm the expert <laughs> no, in. <right? laughs> and like, but it just seems like any, there are so few teachers. I mean, I'm saying that I don't even know of any of my general acquaintance who are like, oh, yes, I know what to do with a neuro, you know, divergent kid versus a neurotypical kid. Right. Every colleague or peer I know is just like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And I... The good news is it seems like there's a true desire, even though we might be misled in what we're doing or, you know, like we're misguided. Mm -hmm. um, so moving past that, thanks for kind of helping me yeah. sort through those terms. Um, I admit to creeping through. Um, I mean, I have followed you for a while and <laughs> have looked at your stuff on um, the Internet. Is what yeah. it's called, I think. You may have Correct. heard of it. Yes. Um, I'm kind of an expert on that. So um, I found another really a great quote. I think it's like a card you shared or something. Um, I'd like to read it, and I would love to hear you expound on it some. Uh, because, as I said, I feel like there are a lot of people who are desirous of growing. But mm -hmm. I wonder, and my dad says I have a tendency to like see everything through my eyes, you know, but <laughs> maybe, I, maybe there are others who feel a similar way. You know, I want to grow in um, the terminology I use about and with, you know, and to my students, but I'm afraid also. Um, and so let me read this to you yeah. and hear your response to it. So you said, Disabled folks are people. Please stop infantilizing us, calling us special, exceptional, and trying to work around saying disability. We all have unique challenges. That's part of being human. Disabled is not a bad word. It's part of who we are. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is, I've you know this because you've seen some <laughs> of my stuff, but the world doesn't know this, is that I am currently coming to terms with the diagnosis myself. I was a SIB first, so that's kind of the, the sibling community um, of people with various disabilities oh, okay. chose this job because of my incredible sister. And as I'm going through stuff, I'm like, hmm, that sounds like me. And you know, do some <laughs> testing and see some people and they're like, oh yeah, you know, you should consider getting diagnosed. And that's a whole mm -hmm. other accessible issue in itself. Right, right, right. Um, the more research that I do and the more I work with other people and start to understand it and understand myself, there are so many people who, because just because of, you know, not having experience and it's not like, we know it is not your intent, not you specifically, but you in the sure, broad sure, sense yeah. that, you know, when you see somebody with disability that you're like, Hey, um, I, I tend to talk down to people or even somebody in a chair, literally looking down at somebody right. you're physically yes. to them and being like, Oh, hi, I see you. Right. No. And I think the best way that I can share this is from an experience that I had my first year teaching. 
I work um, in various self-contained classrooms and push in uh, co-teaching lots of different models. And one of my students is an eighth grader and she used a head switch. So she had two switches to communicate. Um, One was like a common, I have something to say. And then the other one was a switch that was just like a get out of here, leave me alone. I need space switch. So, you know, (laughs) and we had somebody come in. It must've been like a a PA or an OT or somebody came in to work with this student and comes up to them. is like, hi, I'm so glad to see you. And like this little kindergarten voice. Right, right. You just see this, this kid's in there like, oh, we're going to play twinkle, twinkle while I do your stretches or whatever it is. And I'm looking at this, this eighth grader and I'm like, wow, does it annoy you (laughs) when she talks like that? And she just hits, I have something to say immediately. Like Mm -hmm. is rolling her eyes. You know, she is an eighth grader, right? Right. Might take more time for her to process the things. She might not be able to understand something you say because her language is images as opposed to verbal things. Sure. But she knows when she's yeah. being treated like a child. That, eight, that eighth grade sass is still in there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Looking for ways to come out. Exactly. So that's you know a big piece of it, and I think a lot of times too. Luckily, we're in a time where we're able to claim things about ourselves and understand that there's no thing, no such thing as perfection. And that we all have pieces that make us ourselves and are accepting of that. But there was a time, I mean, even when we think about the Individual Disabilities Education Act, like that was the 90s. That was 30 yeah, years ago, you know? So, that's when I was in school. So right. Was you know, and, and even then, some of this stuff is just starting to happen. So even thinking about the changes that have come in those 30 years, we're finally starting to own that again. But there is this kind of like savior complex of us wanting to be like, let me be the voice for this child. Yes have this this special child but like no they have a voice right we have voices let's just support them in it let's give them ways to show it and and I don't want to say that like those incredible moments don't mean anything because they do when a kid is able to participate that's awesome Mm -hmm. and that's really great and especially because that means that now we know they can participate let's get everyone to participate right yeah yeah but um, I think it's also hard because there is such a, you know, linguistics play such a big role. And we're learning that in, in everything that we're doing with ABAR and AA, but, yeah. uh, meaning anti-ableist as well. Right. Like learning and linguistics is some people have different preferences, just like pronouns, right? Yep. Everybody has something that means something different to them. And the same way that we would respect somebody's pronouns, because that's who they are we would respect somebody's language preference. So I said, like I even said this before, I said autistic folks because a lot of the people in the autistic community prefer autistic. But 10 years ago, even five years ago, it was not that. It was person-first language, right? Yes, people yes. autism. So you'll hear a lot of differences there. Some communities, like the deaf community, is we are deaf and there's lots of research out there taking ownership of who they are and that's part of their culture. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of individuals with Down syndrome really prefer person first. Like yeah. they, and, and I get it. Like some people want their disability to define them. Some don't, some are a mix. So the best thing we can do is ask. Yeah. And that's yeah. what you do. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's, um, I mean, this kind of, it, it goes along the lines I think of when I'm talking to people about, you know, their feelings about, you know, anti-racism. I think we are just a self-centered people <laughs> and, and we like things to be, okay, I'll just say me again. I like things to be simple. Right. You know? And so I remember even when I put something up about a book and people started arguing about the title of the book um, and, you know, whether it should be like autistic people or people with op- autism. And then 
it's, it's almost like you could predict the arguments that are coming. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, what is it today? And what is it? And I just said at one point, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the human being you're speaking about or to yeah. thinks. And they have the right to change their mind five times a day. Right. Uh, just like you do and just like I do. So don't be annoyed. Um, just open yourself up to the vulnerability that comes with just asking. Right. Well, and I also think we live in a society that loves labels. We love yes. to label things. Well, it makes, it, makes it easier. Right. You know, and categorize things. And this is, so I see this and I know this. And, and the number one quote that I heard, and this is still relevant today, is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Exactly. Oh, so I like that. Met one person with anything. You've met one person with anything. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, just because it's a certain category doesn't mean anything. And yes. Yeah, there are quite like for any disability there are criteria for certain things but especially with autism we're learning like okay the criteria are vastly different for vastly mm -hmm. different people and so it, you know we can't necessarily categorize something and that's why I love talking about accessibility as a whole because we don't really have to know anything about the disability we just have to know the kid and know what the kid is interested in and how the kid can learn and then we I can use that. the best to include them yeah, I think, I don't know if it was, I, I'm just like, it's a, an amalgam in my head. Of, yeah. I, it seems like it was, you were saying like, instead of being so worked up about what to do in this situation when working with, let's say, this kid with a walker, mm -hmm. ask this child what they want to do. Right. <laughs> you know, and I, it's so simple, but I felt like, I just want somebody to tell me, okay, Missy, every time you have a kid with a walker who comes into your thing and it's right. time for folk dancing, here is the formula, right. X plus Y and now, and I even had that um, thought a couple of weeks ago with a student in a wheelchair where I was like, I wish I just, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know, should I stop doing this activity because it, it makes them feel um, not include, and then I was just like, just ask, right? <laughs> like, just talk to her, and oh. and ask her. Um, and I had done that a couple years ago with uh, one of our students, and it was beautiful. She was very vocal, yeah. and she would just say, no, like right. I'm not doing that, but you do that, and it was a great. And I, but I had to tell myself. She does not dictate that for every student in a similar situation. Right. Well, and just like if you're having, you know, a student who's having a meltdown for whatever reason, like a student who is in trauma, you would ask them what they need, right? Like right. you can't, if you have kindergartners coming back on the first day of school, there's no set formula for kindergartners right. first day of school. You're going to figure out who they are, right. what they're interested in, use their strengths, yeah. figure out what they like, and then their challenges that they have and work towards that. It's the same for anybody. Yeah. It's just different challenges. Yeah, I think, uh, of course, we all know the, um, you know, not just the American teacher, any teacher, you know, in the best of times, we're overwhelmed with, yeah. you know, the expectations uh, that are put on us. And then the ones that are even worse, the ones we put on ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that when you put on, for lack of a better term, you know, special needs concerns, I know that I start to feel overwhelmed. It is akin to when I started thinking about issues of justice in the classroom. Like I remember saying like, I can't, I do not have the mind space 
to deal with this. So here's what I'll do. I'll do what it, it seems like a lot of people do with a lot of things. I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Right. And I understand that, but it's not an acceptable way um, to practice. So obviously for me, this leads into what I was going to ask you next, because we're talking about that feeling of, um, or my feeling of being ill-equipped. And I mentioned earlier, our fear that we're doing something wrong, like we're doing it wrong when it comes to disabled students who are in our classrooms and our rehearsal spaces. If you were able to kind of give, um, a do a do's and don'ts list, which those are sometimes great and sometimes right. not so great. But I think maybe this is a good place for them to serve as like a jumping off point right. for people who are like, I don't know, I'm paralyzed with like, do I want to do this or do I want to do that? Uh, what might that look like for someone who is really seeking um, to create an accessible classroom? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to start with a don't, which is don't feel like you have to do everything all at once because uh, I think that's one you. of the things is when we jump in and we're like, I want to learn I hyper-focused brain. I'm like, I'm going to learn everything that I can about this. It's very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And don't feel like you have to pick one thing and stick to it either because the whole point of accessibility is learning what works for people and adapting, right? Accessibility really is about adaptations, like adapting the way that we do things and modifications, which is what we're doing. So those two big pieces, I like to stick to adaptations, which is all about just how we do things. So you don't have to change your goal at all, right? You right. can still have goal. It's just the materials that you're using. It's the pieces that go into it. It's what songs am I using to teach this? Just like with the way we would when we're looking at like a, a scope and sequence. It's I have my same goal. It's just what pieces am I going to put in there? So the mm-hmm. pieces are going to change, but your goal can stay the same. Don't feel like you have to change everything, right. you know? Right. That's a, that's a big piece of it. And I would say also do look at your like experience with your students. You know your students, right? right? Even if you don't know this person's disability, you know about them. You know where they live. You know what, probably know what they're interested in. If not, I would say do get to know your right. students for right. sure. And from there, use that rapport to say, okay, I know that this student, let's say, comes in with a, an augmentative communication device. So let's say they have an iPad that they use or some schools have communication boards. Some people will know what I say when I'm talking about BoardMaker, which is a picture communication system. Right. You know that they use visuals and communication. Check and see if you have visuals in your lessons, right? That's a great place to start. Even if it's just a couple visuals to give a big picture, I know, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, like choral music here, but if you're giving somebody music to read and you know that they don't really read well, supplement with visuals. And that's just, that's accessibility for everybody. That's for English sure. language learners. Yeah. That's for people who it's a lot of text and they can't necessarily see it for people who are dyslexic. Like it checks a lot of boxes of being right. access for everybody. Mm. And that's a big part of, I know I touched on universal design for learning before too, but it's, it's really just, I, and I would recommend if you do one thing, do a little Google of universal design for learning yes, for people yes. out there. Even if it's just a very brief overview, it'll give a couple ideas of just things that we can do to be a little bit more accessible. And, and one of those is it's all about representation. So mm-hmm. we talk about representation in making sure that in our stories, people from various backgrounds and cultures and races are represented. Mm-hmm. We can do the same thing in the actual materials that we supply in our lessons too through visuals, through the way that we demonstrate information. 
it's just good practice. It's not just for people with disabilities, right? Right, right. And even varying the way that we ask students to respond. So I know this is, a, again, another story from my district. The way that the National Career Arts Standards are written, they are so general. It's yes. awesome. Like, they yeah. are built for universal design. Use, use that to your advantage. That's yes, what I was saying. Absolutely. And at one point, my school or somebody in the district or somebody was saying, like, oh, we're going to do standards-based grading. And for a second grade standard, it is seeing this ostinato. And I was like, okay, but also why specifically this ostinato? And why do we have to sing it? Like, Mm -hmm. the standard was, like, performing on various instruments and for a variety of tasks. And they just made it super specific. Exactly. And so I'm thinking, well, I have students who are oral verbal, meaning that they're not speaking, but they communicate. communicate. Right. Right. Like, well, they can't sing it, but... They can play it on a drum. They can choose the notation that is correct for this ostinato. They can listen to me sing it and choose which way is correct. They can hit a switch and hit switches to put the ostinato together. Why do they have to sing it? Mm. And there are all these different ways to do it. And it's even just thinking about like, what is the goal? And what are the challenges that people might have to meet that goal? And then seeing like, could I do this in a different way? And usually you can't, you know? Right. It's more than one way. Um, and for me, that often looks like I am a manipulative person. I love using yes. manipulatives for my students. Even even just for me, like growing up, it was so much easier for me to show my work than to say my work. Right. And that was a, you know, that's a personal thing and a personal way to learn. And sometimes it just makes a huge difference for people to be able to show what they know in a way that's relevant to them. Just like, you know, we don't all want to give huge presentations in front of a large room. Some of us right. turn in a paper. Right. Some of us would rather do a video submission. And I think we saw a lot of that. One of the great and terrible things of COVID was we had to rethink the way that we were assessing mm-hmm. students. If Absolutely. We assess students, which obviously wasn't at the forefront, but thinking about how students are going to interact. So even like with those choice boards that we, a lot of us made, we gave them lots of options to be able to learn something. Yeah. Right. So why can't we continue that in our classrooms? I said this to you just when we were kind of chatting. I think we could, I think I said we could do a whole Netflix, like, (laughs) binge-worthy series. But first of all, I hope you're willing to come back um, because there's so much to kind of plumb in this. But you brought up something. This is funny. Um, Rachel Grimsby. Incredible. Yes. She's at my alma mater now. She took a good job. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's where you. Okay. How Yep. She's incredible. Well, she uh, was talking to me. This must be two years ago now, (laughs) or three, or 10. I don't even know anymore. And she kept talking about universal design for learning. And I was like, mm hmm, mm hmm. And then I'm like, I have no idea what this is. But now I'm in that place where I'm pretending to know where it is, what it's. So she was very gracious because I was like, I just do not understand what this is. And I also don't understand how I don't know about something that when she started to talk about, it's like, this seems like what we need. It, it makes so much sense, too. Why isn't it? Why aren't we? So would you be willing to give us just kind of a, a that because you already said like Google it or whatever, but if you were giving that elevator pitch to somebody, yeah. you know, an, you're going, like I'm going into conference season now and I see somebody and they're like, listen, I don't have any space for a new thing. And you're like, but just consider universal design for learning. What would you say to them? Yeah. Universal design for learning is it's a best practice for teaching period. It is not just for people with disabilities. It is for everybody. It is all about 
multiple means. So it really is like three pieces, multiple means of engagement. So the way that we engage students of representation, which we kind of touched on earlier when we were talking about some of those visuals and then about action and expression. And so it kind of goes through those three pieces of all of the ways that we can teach students. And it kind of talks through what those might look like. And now, of course, it doesn't really talk music specific, but it's out. And the great thing about universal design for learning is that, as we know, social emotional learning right now is a huge thing. You know, that big piece. And they are meant to go together. Yeah, (laughs) because I was going to ask, you know, I've said this in the past where it's like, okay, I got the SEL, I've got the culturally relevant pedagogy, and then I've got the, and if I'm like, help me narrow it down or whatever, I'm happy to hear you say that these things work well together. Because my tendency in my small brain is to be like, I only have so much room in my brain. So which one should I learn about SEL or UDL? And then, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about yeah. And even the pieces of like, we know SEL is about identity, belonging and working with others, right? It's decision making yeah. and universal design for learning. It's, it's the multiple means of the things that we do. So when we think about being part of a community like SEL is that belonging piece, it's the way that we present our actions and express ourselves, right? That's right. Right. When we're talking about means of representation of helping people understand what's going on, that's part of their identity. That's part of them belonging in a classroom. If they can access information, they can make good decisions, right? Like they just work so well together mm-hmm. and being able to, and even thinking about like culture, right? Providing multiple pieces of culture, representative music from different eras, from different folks, from different races, all of those pieces are representation, but that's also making sure that we're including our students in the narrative. So all of these things really tie in together. And I think at least for me, the big reason that we don't know about this is because we're so used to staying in our lane. We're like, I Mm -hmm. am a music teacher. Right. I am a special ed teacher. And I know even like looking at IEPs can be super overwhelming. You do not have to know an IEP to do universal design for learning. Right. Right. Your students. So like what, what is universal design for learning? Is it a, is it a, um, yeah. Okay. So it's a framework. Um, and who, who are the people who, not the, names of the people but like the people who began to put it together what were they what were they answering do do you know what I mean yeah so really it's it's just about like finding best practices it wasn't even necessarily designed for special education although it really came to be that way Mm -hmm. if you go to like cast.org c-a-s-t.org there's just a great one-page overview and it really is just like we were looking to figure out what works for everybody in education period like right makes a great classroom and it's oh having multiple ways of presenting information having multiple it literally says multiple means of this multiple means of this and then they talk through those bullets of like examples of what that looks like so in my classroom again like multiple means of action and expression is giving them different ways to play and in some classrooms we're already doing this where we're like okay um we can practice different instruments right that's multiple means that's using different instruments Right. Some of our classrooms are like, okay, I'm going to use standard notation versus iconic notation. That's multiple means of representation. We're already doing it. Like right. really just reflecting on the way. And hopefully, you know, as educators, I know, and not to add something else to our plate, if we're not reflecting right now, take a moment for yourself. But right. when you feel ready to take a moment and reflect on the lessons that we're teaching, that's really what it's about. It's looking and saying like, was this the only way that I could have done this? What can I do differently? Yeah, and if yeah. you can say that you can do something differently, think about how we can do it differently. 
Mm, I like that. I think um, when we have you back, I'd love to go through more of that idea of um, UDL with social emotional yeah. learning. And you wrote a chapter in um, Scott Edgar's yeah. most recent book. Yes. Um, and are you, do you go out and do trainings and stuff like that? What are some things like if somebody's listening, what are some things that they could tap into that you offer? Because you're, um, you have an excellent way of communicating these things. And this is the kind of stuff that, you know, undergrads should be learning, Absolutely. but just old lady teachers like me too. And well, old people teachers yeah. everywhere. And, and I'll say too, like, you can always, always reach out to me on social media, people listening and email. I'm, I will talk through it when I can, you know, yes. <laughs> um, and I can't say exactly what, but there are some great books in the works that will be coming with some of this information. All right. Um, I did have some sessions with FLAT that I did all about SEL and UDL. And I also have, if you follow me on Instagram, I yes. have a festival music store that has free resources. It's um, awesome. A ton of manipulatives and stories and just a bunch of stuff that like, again, accessibility should be for everybody. And that means financially for teachers who right. you know, are overworked and underappreciated. So, Although you should be compensated for the work well, that you yes. do. But yeah. <laughs> um, you. yeah, of course. Um, so we're going to have like, we'll list all this stuff on mm -hmm. the episode website, but let everybody, everybody know your website or the best is what's the best way to kind of plug into the things that you share and, yeah, Instagram really is because then I've yeah. got that link in there and then you can just click click away and click what you need. And um, I, I have been doing some mostly virtual sessions if people are interested. Yes. I would love to talk. If you've got a group of people who's like, yeah, I want to just learn about this for a half hour, let me know. Reach yes. out. I love doing it that way. Um, right now, my, my husband and I, he's also a musician, have been working in an organization to provide accessibility training um, specifically for the arts, not just music, for all arts. So we've been right. doing sessions on sensory safe spaces and, you know, in the classroom too, but I'm in the classroom. So that's like, sure. I love that. I love them more than <laughs> <laughs> And you know, what else would be really interesting to talk um, about is teachers uh, finding out, uh, out about ourselves. You yep. talked about what mm -hmm. you're going through and like the importance of knowing ourselves and how we okay. learn and how that impacts how we teach. So that's another thing we could do. Yeah, and I have to give a shout out to Scott Edgar for that one because I think I found out that I, well, and I haven't even completed the diagnosis process yet. Right. And that's a whole story for another day. But um, I found out maybe a year before I met him and had not told anybody like at all until I started talking with him. We got into SEL and I'm like, maybe I should just, Maybe I should talk about it. Maybe right. I should talk about it. And I, I got to give him a huge shout out for like opening the doors to yeah, ourselves and, and building yeah. those connections. And I found I am, I was worried about coming back this year because this is our first year fully back in person for my mm -hmm. school. I, I think I am worse at, I'll be honest, worse at teaching music, right. but better at teaching people than and, I have ever been. And you know what? I feel the same way and I'm okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I really have come to terms with it and I'm embracing it. I, you know, I was like looking at, um, like I have a student teacher coming in for the first time in a while and for 
it's the first time I was like, you know what? I don't care. Like, because sometimes I'll think, oh, I better get these kids like up to speed and, you know, like, you know, what units are they on? What notation are they doing? And I was just like, no, are, this is my, my thing this two years, three years, whatever it is. Are they safe? Are they seen? Right. Are they engaged? Are they reflected? And are they having fun? Exactly. Like, is every kid in this classroom feeling like maybe music isn't my favorite thing, but it's a place I enjoy being and I feel connected uh, to, to myself, to my peers, you know, to my teachers. Music is a good place. Like, yeah. that's what I'm thinking. And I'm like, let go of the other stuff because it's just not that important comparatively. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a great point, too, because I know we don't have as many teachers working in self-contained classes mm -hmm. only right now. But for those of you that are, and I've, I've been mentoring somebody who is right now for the first time, and they're like, well, I just don't know how to get them to play the recorder. And I'm like, well, first of all, <laughs> that's a different story. But, but I guess asking too, like, why is it so important to you that yes. they the recorder? Because at the end of the day, when I think about my students and the programming that I do, and I'm lucky to be in a district that's like, do what you want, teach what yes. you want, this is your program. But what do I want my students to get from this music class is I want them to be adults in society that like participating in music and have a, a reason to listen to music and to engage. Yes. Like, I don't care if they go on to be professional musicians. If they do, that's awesome. If they don't, that's okay. If right. they decide that they want to be somebody who plays an instrument at home, that's great. If they decide that they want to sing in their free time in their shower, that's great. If they decide they just want to press play on a song while they're cooking, okay with me too. Yeah. I just want them to have music in their lives. Yes, I, I love it. I want to come to class and know that they're going to gain something from it and be interested in it. And that's what matters to me. Mm. And I think that is, I wish I could communicate. You know, I see what feels like hundreds, thousands of teachers who are just, just burning out. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of a better way of saying it. And I just want to keep saying that thing that I came to terms with last year. Do my kids feel loved and acknowledged and truly seen, not just paying lip service like, oh, I am seen and I am. No, every person who walks through this door matters to me. And if I'm not communicating that to you, I'm sorry. And I'm going to try better. And I want you to connect to the musical part of your humanity, which every one of you has. Nice. And about 1% of you is going to go on to become a professional musician. Mm -hmm. So I no longer teach to the 1%. Right. Um, I just want those kids coming in and knowing music is for me. Dr. Strong is for me. She's like advocate, protector. Um, she makes me laugh. So I think that that w that's what has to be most important. And I'm just going off. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, so thank you. I mean, I think I I'm loving how this is kind of uh, coming to a natural close because here's what I would love for people to hear this and then just be like, you know what? I'm going to start thinking about this. Mm -hmm. Like where maybe perhaps before they were like, I can't. Right. I can't even go there. Like our students need us to go there, even if we make mistakes. 
Absolutely. And I think we all get in that, that headset of, I haven't been trained for this or I don't know what I'm doing, but, but you're, you do know what you're doing because you know your students and you know yourself. Yep. And by even trying anything, you're taking a great step in the right direction. Like mistakes are how we know we're growing. Yep, absolutely. And how are we supposed to communicate that to our students if we can't do it? Right, right. You know, <laughs> if it's like, and that's what, like I was mentioning before, I had to come to that place where it was like, I cannot wait until I become some expert in anti-racism to care about this and actively try to do something. I have to accept that I'm going to make mistakes, but I have to try earnestly. Exactly. You know, and it's the same with this because I confess for a long time, I was like, I'm not even thinking about this because it's too much. So now that I've relinquished some of those, like I must do all these musical, you know, goals and whatever, doesn't mean that music isn't important. Of course it is. Um, but I thank you. I thank you for the work that you're doing um, and for the effort that you put forward uh, for teachers and, of course, ultimately for students. And I look forward to more conversation about this and hopefully we'll together, but really just you, uh, <laughs> inspire people to learn more and try yeah. step out and um, try something. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Talking with Elise was the kick in the pants necessary to acknowledge that every student in the music room needs to have access to whatever they need for learning and that I must first take the steps toward making that happen in my own music room. I don't need to master what every disabled child needs. I need to be open to listening to the disabled students who I teach right now and their caregivers and teachers, getting to know them and their needs so they can become more musical. Thanks again, Elise, for being passionate and open about this important topic. I look forward to learning more so that I can better connect with every student who comes to my music room. I can't wait to sit and chat with you more in the future and for your upcoming projects. Speaking of that, head to the episode website to find ways to connect with Elise. Before I go, I'd like to encourage you to check out my Buy Me A Coffee site, a place where you can help support the work of the Music at Amplified podcast and me. You can make a small donation or you can become a member at the Earl Grey or Afternoon Tea level. In addition to supporting the podcast, when you become a member of either one of these, You will also get other benefits and fun stuff too, like graphics I've created for my classroom, the huge move along with Dr. Strong creative movement cards I'm sharing, lesson plans and resources, and something like the following shout outs I'm about to do for the latest batch of new members from the afternoon tea level. I am so excited to say that we have over 30 new afternoon tiers since the last time I made this announcement in late December. I also have to apologize if I butcher a name or if I have to say just the email because sometimes people only leave their email and not their name. So let's uh, give a shout out to the following new afternoon team members. Shout out to Tracy Stevens, Sherry Mitchell, Ellie Hardy, Erica Schoenbeck, Heather, Colleen Gilgan, Elsa Williams, Leah Sousa, Cassandra Pepler, Stacy Redding, Michael McBride, Megan Hughes, Hallie Stone, Trumpet Girl 23, 
Jesse Johnson, Katie Olson, Jamie Pitts, Cora Herrick, Audrey Marr, Marie Stewart, Elizabeth Lindsay, Katie Shank, Amanda Blutner, Kathleen Ingram, Sarah Jane Sipperly, Christy Scent, Allison Sokol, and Emily Cunningham. I truly am thankful to each and every one of you for joining and for your encouragement. I appreciate it so much. If you're interested in finding out more about it and supporting the work of the podcast, please check it out at buymeacoffee.com slash missystrong. For questions about the podcast, write to docstrong26 at gmail.com or reach out to Music Ed with Missy on Facebook or Instagram or on Twitter at docstrong26. Our podcast music was composed and performed by Jeremy and Owen Strong. Jeremy also serves as the audio engineer and editor for the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you have, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen and share it with others. This is the best way for us to get the word out. Thank you for spending time with me. I know you are busy, and I know for sure that life is demanding a lot from you. I hope it was worthwhile and that you're motivated to reflect on your philosophy and practice. I'll see you next time. But until I do, keep doing all you can to create a more musical, joyful, thoughtful, just world for your students, families, and community.